Well, again, if this is the first time, or first time in a long time, uh, we're actually wrapping up a series we started way back in the fall called The Big Story of Scripture. We got one more week, uh, but we started this way back in August and uh, going through Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that are tying the one big story of Scripture all together. This morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, picking up in verses 19 through 25. Next week, we're going to wrap it up in Revelation. I'm going to try to wrap the, do Revelation in one week, which is like preacher's suicide. So, uh, um, but anyway, we're going to give that a shot, and, uh, and, so, and everybody will be disappointed afterwards, but uh, we're, going to, we're going to do that anyway. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we're going to be uh, talking about God's design for the church quite a bit this morning. A uh, number, uh, number of years ago, I had a pretty funny conversation uh, with a guy that I knew back in the day. We've gone to church together. I was a minister at the church, and he was in my ministry. And so we knew each other a little bit. We were acquaintances at the time. And uh, we happened to run into him out at a restaurant out in West Village. We were eating one night. And uh, I ran up to him, and just for the sake of the story, I'm going to say his name is John. But I was like, John, it's good to see you, buddy. I was like, long time no see, man. And uh, by the way, when a pastor comes, if you see me like outside of the church and I'm like, hey, long time no see, like that's not a guilt trip, okay? Like I feel like I just need to throw that out there. I'm not guilting you. It's not like, hey, what's up with your church attendance and stuff like that. It's just like, a, it's good to see you. You know, that's like what you say to normal people and stuff. But anyway, and so I, I, I see him out there. And I'm like, long time no see. I hope you're doing good, buddy. How are you doing? And, and immediately he starts freaking out. He starts kind of thinking I'm doing the guilt trip pastor thing. And and he starts coming up with all these excuses. He's like, yeah, yeah, uh, things are going really, really good. It's good to see you, Pastor Aaron. I'm like, I'm Aaron. You can call me Aaron. And he's like, good to see you, Pastor Aaron. And stuff. You, know, uh, you know, me and Jesus are really, really good. I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that that's, he's like, we're really, really good. He's like, yeah, I haven't been around church in a long time and stuff. But, you know, you know we're hanging. We're doing a really good job. You know, you don't have to go to church to be saved. You know that, right? You don't have to go to church to be saved. And he goes, in fact, the Bible even says where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Do you know that? And I was like, I've heard that one before. <laughs> uh, that's, we, we've heard that excuse quite a bit. And, and he just likes going off like over and over again with kind of like one thing down the line and one thing after the next. And I was like, calm down, buddy. I was like, I'm just glad to see you. It's good to, I'm, I'm glad to run into you again. And it was kind of funny in my, from my perspective anyway. But the reason I bring that up, like it's not just with my buddy John, right? Like, this is an issue. Like, it, it, there seems to be a lot of questions, and there seems to be a lot of confusion today about why uh, you and I should actually be committed to a local church body. Like, it's not just with him, but it, there seems to be a lot, of, a lot of discussion about, okay, I am a believer in Christ. I don't have to go to church in order to be saved. Why in the world should I actually be invested in a local church body? We've talked about this a lot around here before. You've heard some of the stats uh, way back in the day growing up. A lot of us, if you're um, you've been around a while. That's a nice, kind way of saying you're old. Um, but if you've been around for a little while, you remember like a, the, the normal committed church member, you could count on them attending church for about 48 out of 52 weeks out of the year. Like today, you've heard some of the statistics and stuff, but today a committed church member is attending church between 28 and 34 times out of the year. It's an enormous dip. 48, you can do the math there, and it's an enormous dip. There's a lot of different reasons for this too, right? And uh, this is, here's a few of them. These are taken from an article called Why I Don't Go to Church, which I thought was pretty relevant. Um, the church is full of hypocrisy. I want nothing to do with hypocrites, right? You hear this one all the time. Well, we've talked about this a number of times in the church. Uh, the church is irrelevant. I don't get much out of it anymore. So what's the point of even going, right? The church is about me and helping me have a better life. Everything I need, I can find online. I think this is a huge one today. Everything that I need to grow, I can actually find online. I can listen to TED Talks. Sermons are online. Books, lectures, Bible studies. So why in the world should I get up and go to a physical church anymore? 
Uh, one person wrote in and said, the church is people, it's not a building. Amen, right? Like, the church is people, it's not a building. Biblically, there's a universal church that's spiritual, so I'm not about to join some tainted corporate entity that's been created by man. Right? Have you heard any of these things before? And, and I could keep going, and I could talk about like a lot of these different kinds of responses that we hear all the time, but it just seems like collectively uh, that we're missing some really important foundational truths about what our gathering is actually supposed to be like and why he's even put us together in the first place. And it's exactly what our passage is going to help us with this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, again, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 is where we're going to be. Uh, again, first time in a long time, I want to catch us up a little bit of where we are in the big story. Uh, from beginning to end, we are seeing the exact same God. I want to make that disclaimer. Not one God in the Old Testament, one God in the New Testament. One God eternally existing in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's also, we're also seeing the exact same mission play out really from the beginning all the way to the end. From Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, God brings in his mission of bringing healing and redemption to the entire world. And he's doing it largely through his covenant people. So under the Old Testament, you're seeing that play out through the nation of Israel. And under the New, New Testament, uh, he is doing it largely by the power of his Holy Spirit working in and through his church. Men and women uh, who have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and are now filled with his Holy Spirit. And so uh, we've been talking about it for the past few weeks, but when you see the church begin and when you see the church come on the scene, it just erupts on the scene, right? And it's doing this in the middle of this context. It's, it's full of opposition and persecution and all kinds of difficulty. A couple weeks ago, we talked about it in uh, Acts chapter 8, but the Apostle Paul, who ends up writing nearly half the New Testament, uh, he's actually Saul in Acts chapter 8, and he launches this massive persecution against the church. And it says that he's just going around and he's throwing believers into prison and he's trying to, uh, he's trying to stamp out the, the burning fame, flame of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. Uh, and it's just major opposition and persecution. And it just seems like no matter what they try to do to oppose it, the church just continues to spread out, continues to preach the gospel, continues to make disciples. And the Lord just keeps adding to the number daily those who are being saved. And the point is it's all happening in the middle of an incredible amount of opposition and persecution to everything that's going on. And that brings us to the context of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews is actually written in the late 60s, which means that there's about 30, 35 years of the Holy Spirit being here now and, uh, and enlivening his church body and going and spreading all around the world. There's missionary movements, there's church planning movements, and we got about 35 years of the Holy Spirit working in and through his church to build up his church for the promotion of his glory and his fame. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews isn't known. Uh, a lot of people thought it was the Apostle Paul. Some people think it may be Barnabas. Uh, some people think it might be Apollos or even uh, Priscilla. Uh, we don't know exactly know who the author is, but the audience is a believing first century Jew who's having a really, really hard time holding on to their new faith in the middle of incredible opposition and persecution. And so the message that you're going to see all throughout Hebrews is every step of the way, really every single chapter, he's going to be saying, press on in the faith. You first century believing Jew who's struggling to hold on to their faith in the middle of opposition, even though you're a minority in this, uh, in this, uh, in this world that you're living in, press on in the faith because in every possible way, Jesus is better than whatever you're tempted to go back to under the old covenant rule. 
right? That's his entire message. So chapter one, it's Jesus is better than the prophets. I know you love the prophets, but Jesus is better than the prophets because the prophets came and they gave a message from God, but Jesus actually was a son of God. Jesus is better than the angels because angels came and gave messages. They, they, they uh, came to give good news, but Jesus actually was the good news they came to bring, right? Uh, Jesus is better than Moses in the law. That's going to be chapters 3 and 4 because he actually was the fulfillment of the law. Everything that Moses led to, everything that the law pointed to, it was leading to the day that, Christ, that God would send his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we could not live and die the death we were supposed to die as a penalty for our sin. It's all pointing to him. He's a better high priest. He's one according to the order of Melchizedek, which is a really, really weird reference here. But if you're reading through uh, Hebrews, it's an important one. Melchizedek was a high priest uh, who was eternal, and he was also a king at the exact same time. And it's exactly who Jesus is. He's not just a ruling king, uh, but he, he is a, a king who rules eternally by mediating for his people. Chapters 8 through 10, Jesus is the better sacrifice. He's not like a sacrifice of, from the blood of goats and rams and things of that nature. His sacrifice was sufficient to cover all of our sins once and for all. And so from beginning to end, this entire message throughout the book of Hebrews is, no matter what you do, press on in the faith, keep going in the faith, press on in the faith, because in every possible way, Jesus is better. And so I want to pick it up here in chapter 10, verse 19. We've just seen 10 chapters of beautiful theology about who Jesus is, everything that he came to do. And now the author of Hebrews is going to be turning the tide a little bit, and he's going to start applying it to our local church gathering and what all this stuff means for us as we gather together as his church. Here's what he says in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brethren, anytime you see that word therefore, circle it, look back, and we're looking back at 10 chapters of theology about who Jesus is, what he came to do. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. It's a lot of churchy words. So what's happening here? Anybody who kind of remember the reference here? It's going to be Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is hanging upon the cross. And here's what it says. He's hanging upon the cross, and it says, When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the veil in the temple, you remember this? The veil in the, in the temple which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. There's a massive 60-foot veil in the temple, four inches thick, separated from those things. Once a year, the high priest would go beyond that veil into the holy of holies, would make intercession on behalf of the people, offer his sacrifices, and forgiveness would be made for the sins of the people. Okay, it says this, it says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, that veil that was literally and physically there in that temple, 60 feet high, four inches thick, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Nobody tore it. There wasn't a human hand there. It tore in two from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last, signifying that everything Jesus was, came to do was being accomplished there upon that cross. In his perfect life, death, and resurrection, uh, we now have access to the Holy of Holies. No more mediation, no more sacrifices, no more priests, no more old ways of doing things. Because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, you and I who come to the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine faith now have access to the Holy of Holies. A lot of beautiful theology in there, and I hope you love that kind of thing because it is good, good, good stuff. But that's what he's saying right here. 
And he says this, he says, Since we have confidence now to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now he's going to say three let us statements. These are going to be three implications for our gathering here. Number one, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with, the pure, with, the, with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ drawing near. In other words, everything that Jesus came to do has implications for the way that we gather. That's exactly what he's saying. Because he has given us access to the Holy of Holies, because he is a better high priest whose sacrifice is sufficient once and for all, let's draw near to him unashamed. Let's stand strong in our convictions about the gospel. Paul says the same things. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And then let's Consider, let us consider how to stimulate one another here uh, to love and good deeds always. In other words, everything that he came to do has implications for our gathering. By the way, Jesus says the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus asks his disciples this question as he says, okay, so who do people say that I am? You remember how they respond? They're going, okay, well, some people think that you're that you're John the Baptist, and some people think that you're Elijah, and some people think that you're a prophet, and some people think that you're this and that. And Jesus goes, okay, that's fantastic, but who do you think that I am? And Peter stands up, and he goes to the forefront, and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus says this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, meaning his confession that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of the living God. It is a play on words. Peter's name is Petros. It literally means rock. But what he's saying is upon this rock, your confession that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of the living God, I will build my church. The word that he uses there is ecclesia, which does not mean a physical mortar building. That's not what the church is. It is not necessarily a building, although we use buildings. It is not necessarily an organization, although we have organization. Ecclesia is a gathering of people. That's what ecclesia is. And specifically what he's talking about is ecclesia is a gathering of people that are united around this common confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He's not just another apostle. He's not just a prophet. He's not just an evangelist. He's not just a great teacher. He's not one one of many different ways to the exact same God. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And what he says next is that when my people gather together under that one common confession, the gates of hell won't be able to prevail. In other words, that's the testimony of the church from the very beginning of its conception all the way to where we are seeing it today. So in Acts chapter 7, when the Romans come on the scene and they're trying to kill the church from the very, very, very beginning, the people just disperse. They keep preaching the gospel. They keep making disciples. And the Lord just keeps adding to the number daily those who are being saved. Like they can't kill it out. In 300 AD, when the Romans keep going and, and they actually start burning all the manuscripts of the original Bible that were there at that time, and they start burning Christian families at the stake and making people witness these things in order to, to uh, discourage their gatherings at the time, like the church just continues to explode. Constantine actually gets saved as the emperor of Rome and makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire at that time. Like in the 18th century, the French atheist Voltaire, he famously said this. He said, within 100 years of my death, no one's going to ever even remember the Bible existed. You know what exists in his home today? A Bible printing press. 
Not even kidding about that. The 20th century is the communists, right? But today it's the communists that are fading and the church in China is growing faster than at any time in history. And that's what he means when he says the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. The gospel will continue to be preached. Jesus will continue to be amplified. Uh, people will continue to be saved. God will be glorified. Freedom will be recovered. Dignity will be restored. Addictions will be broken. Joy will be found. Peace will be experienced. The hungry will be fed. The abused will be, will be healed. And the lost will be saved saved. Why? Because he's got plans for his church. He's got plans for his church. It's not an arbitrary gathering. He's got plans for his church. He's got a purpose for his church. And the reason we've got to understand this is because if your common confession is that Jesus is the Christ, he is the son of the living God, you recognize who he is, you place all your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a substitute for you, then you are already the church. He has made you a part of his body. You are already a part of that church. And Paul's going to say, like, we're all a part of the body of Christ. We're essential members of the exact same body. Some are hands, and some are going to be feet, and some are going to be mouths, and some are going to be brains, and some are going to be teachers, and evangelists, and prophets, and apostles, and all these different kinds of things. But we are all essential members of the exact same body. And so hear me on this. The question we need to be asking is not, why in the world should any of us become committed members of a local body? Because the reality is, Jesus has already taken care of that part for us. You are a member of Christ's body. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your confession is that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, he has already made you a member of his body. So the only question that we need to be asking is what kind of member am I? Am I a contributing member or am I a crippling member? Because what Jesus just said was that his church is moving forward and when his church moves forward, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. When the people of God stop playing church, stop debating the value of the church, stop critiquing every little thing about the church and start being the church that he's called us to be. To that end, in verse 24, the author of Hebrews says, hey, it, in light of everything that Jesus has done on our behalf, in light of all these different reasons why Jesus is better, in light of everything that he's done, consider one another. In other words, don't just, don't just live on an island here. In other words, like this gathering, like it's not just about you, but consider other people. Consider one another. Think strategically is literally what it means. Think strategically about other people when you wake up in the morning. Prayerfully consider how God might want to use you for the good of others who are here and gathering for the exact same purposes this morning. It's kind of like what counselors do. One of the things I loved about the days at Pine Cove was, uh, and maybe you don't know this if you've never experienced it before, but like Pine Cove is about so much more than just uh, fun and games and energy and jumping and, and uh, tons of caffeine and sleepless nights and things of that nature. But um, there's an intense commitment to discipleship going, and evangelism going on that week. And so it wasn't just about the games and all these different kinds of things. But every single week, if you're a counselor there, um, you set aside time to meet at least for one hour with every single camper that's in your cabin that week. And so Sunday would come, and this is Sunday, this is the day that before all the campers would get there at the camp, and we would get our rosters, and I'd see everybody that's going to be in my cabin that week, and we would go back to our cabin on Sunday morning, and we would just take that roster, and we'd pray over every single name on that list. And we'd say, Lord, I, I don't know Billy yet, but you brought him to this place, and I pray that it would be for a reason. And we would pray over these people, and we'd say, Holy Spirit, would you come and do a great work in Billy's life? Would you come and meet him here this week? And then the kids would get there, and they'd, uh, you know, they'd unpack their, their, their suitcases and all these different things. And inevitably, there would be like a 24-pack of Mountain Dew in there, which is always really gross. But 
when they come and, you know, they finally settle down and we're going through the little, the program of the week and kind of what everything's going to look like. And, and I kind of tell them, I'm saying, hey, we're going to have a ton of fun this week, but, but here's the thing. I want to take an hour to be, sit and talk with every single one of you. I want to talk through the gospel. I want to hear your story. And, and so here's the calendar. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to say, okay, Monday at 2 o'clock, I'm going to meet with Billy. Th- Wednesday at 3 o'clock, I'm going to meet with you. And, and we'd set it up on the calendar. And then that time would come and I'd meet him at the picnic table and I'd bring a little notepad with me. And we'd sit down, and I'd be talking with Billy, and he'd just be telling me his story and all these different things. And I'd start taking notes about what God was doing in his life because I didn't just want to just carelessly go and offer advice. I wanted to listen. I wanted to consider what God was doing in his life, and I wanted to listen, and I wanted to pay attention to the details of what was going on in that life. And I wanted to consider the possibility that God might bring me into this person's life for such a time as this, that this little child might come to understand the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of this incredible week that they're going to have at Pine Cove that particular week. That's what consideration looks like. You're looking at this other person, and you're thinking, God, maybe you have something for them. And you're looking at this other person, you're saying, hey, this whole gathering, this whole thing, like it's not just about me. Like this isn't just about me, but I'm considering, God, what do you want to do in Billy's life over here, church? 59 times all throughout the New Testament, we are told to consider one another. And it's all throughout the New Testament. A new commandment I give you that you love one another, be at peace with one another, wash one another's feet, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Serve one another in love. Be patient and bear one another in love. 59 times, church, it does not end because we were made for one another. Like John Wesley put it like this. He said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. You can look for it. You're just not going to find it. Church, like what would it look like if we woke up on a Sunday morning and we actually were considering other people that were going to be here this morning? Like, what if we woke up this morning and beyond the children that were screaming and beyond the stress of getting breakfast ready and beyond the stress of maybe an ironing a shirt or, or not uh, or, or whatever else, like beyond these different kinds of things, like what if we woke up and we said, Lord, how would you want to use me today? God, maybe in the middle of this gathering, it's not just about me and my preferences and the things that I want to bring to the table, but God, is there a word? Is there something you would want to use uh, through me to be able to encourage and build up and strengthen your body that I'm going to gather with here this Sunday morning? Can you imagine what a church would look like that did that all the time? Like, can you imagine what a, church, what a church would look like if their children's ministry, if we didn't think about it like it was daycare or babysitting or something like that, but you actually woke up and you said, you know what, there's going to be a child in that classroom that needs to know that they are unequivocally loved by the God in heaven who created them. And there's a parent unit, maybe single, maybe married, there's going to be a parent somewhere in that crowd that needs an hour or two to get away and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I'm going to consider these people and say, maybe you want to use me to serve them this morning. Like, can you imagine, honestly? If you woke up and you're like, hey, we did not think about our greeting and hospitality like it, uh, like it was just some, some kind of superfluous thing, but, but we actually considered an essential, uh, an essential part of the mission of God that communicates to every man, woman, and child who walks into this place that they are not only welcome in this place, but there's a God in heaven who loves them and is eager to meet with them today. I mean, church, that's what we're doing here. Everything that we're doing when we gather, it is for that purpose. It is for the edification of this body, that God may be more glorified in your life. It is that you may grow up in love and good deeds. And that's what he's saying here. Don't just passively see people. When you come and go from this place, think strategically about them. Look around you. Get away from yourself and look outside of yourself and think and consider for a fact that God may have placed you in this body on purpose to contribute to its building, to contribute to its edification, all for the glory and honor 
of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. It continues in verse 24, and he says, let us consider even more specifically, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In other words, like as our, our consideration, again, that's not an arbitrary consideration. I'm not just thinking of just floating heads in a room or anything like that. I'm thinking, I, I'm actually considering uh, how to stimulate each other to love and good deeds. Literally, that word for stimulate means to spur one another on or to sharply prod you into action. In other words, it's not always comfortable. <laughs> Right? Like, that's not a great image to have there. Does anybody own a pair of boots with spurs? Right, we're in Texas, so I assume we all do, and I'm just glad that no one's wearing them right now. I, I look at that picture. Like, that's not comfortable, right? Like, it's not a great, it's not always a great place to be if you're the horse right there. Right? But, like, the, the point of a spur is to get a horse to move into action even when he doesn't want to move. Like, the point of a spur is to get a horse to move when either he's blind to the reality that he needs to move or he's just stubborn and set in his ways and doesn't want to move. And it's exactly what Hebrews is saying. Sometimes you need a spur to come into your life and sometimes you need to embrace the spur. Sometimes God may be calling you to go and be a spur, a loving spur, a respectful spur in the life of someone you know and love. Sometimes God may call you to go and be a spur and sometimes you need to embrace the spurring that God is bringing into your life. God may lead you to have a difficult conversation with someone that you know and love in order to help them move forward to greater love and good deeds. That's what spurs do. Easily one of my greater regrets in life is not being a spur when I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was calling me to spur on one of my best friends who was in a relationship he had no business being in. We all knew it. It wasn't just this isolated thing. We're kind of looking into the situation going, uh, we know this is dysfunctional. I think he knew it. Our friends knew it. Everybody around there knew the entire thing that was going on. And the truth of the matter is I wanted to keep the peace, and I was scared. The truth of the matter is I, I knew that I needed to come and say, hey, bro, there's some major red flags that are going on in this relationship. And the truth of the matter is I just uh, I didn't want to be that person. I was scared that he might hold it against me or whatever. And the um, fact of the matter is I just I kind of chickened out. I didn't say it very strongly or anything like that. About, they ended up getting married about a year into the marriage. The entire thing blows up, and it's just massive, massive hurt and disaster all the way around. On the flip side, like easily one of the best weekends of my life, it was also one of the most painful ones I've ever had to experience. I don't know if you've ever been to a counseling session before, and uh, I didn't really do this until much later on, but uh, those aren't always the most fun to be a part of, are they? Uh, we went to this conference early in our seminary days. It was called E-Lead. I think I've shared some of these stories a little bit with you in the past, but um, it was a conference designed to get into the details of your life, your marriage, and to help uh, speak wisdom and help give you some direction of where God may actually be leading you in the future. And so uh, this wasn't like a conference that you've ever been to. Uh, for the months leading up to this conference, I mean, you're doing all kinds of tests with a lot of different counselors. They're calling your spouse, doing extensive interviews with your spouse about you. They're calling your family and best friends, doing extensive interviews about you, uh, your professors, and everybody who knows you best. You're doing a two-hour phone interview with them on the, on the phone, and like, they are knowing everything about you. So you show up to this thing, and I, it, this isn't an introduction. They know everything that's true about your life at that time. It's kind of t and scary and intimidating at the same time. It was an incredible weekend. My life changed. It took a new direction as a result of that, but make no mistake, it was incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, I'll never forget sitting in the, in the, in the counseling session with one of these guys, and um, 
And he just starts challenging. And, of course, it's after a lot of encouragement. Here's what's good about you. Here's your gifts. Here's the things I want to affirm about you. But here's the blind spots that are there in your life. And I'll never forget, he called me out on it big time. He goes, Aaron, you're one of the most, more self-sufficient, independent people I've met, which means you're going to always struggle to pray. And prayer is the power behind what you want to do for the rest of your life. And I remember sitting there just listening to this thing. He's like, and basically I'm just kind of slapped with my own weaknesses right in front of my face. I'm going, wow, that stings. You're, you're, always, you're so self-sufficient. You're so independent. You don't ask for help very easily. And these are major, major weaknesses that are going to cripple your ministry if nothing changes in your life. And then he starts digging into the depths of my marriage. And he starts talking about this and he starts talking about that and all of my weaknesses and the different things that I am bringing to the table that aren't necessarily the most helpful things in the world. Church, like that's not an easy conversation to have. I'll never forget, like, we were sitting out in the lobby. One of my best friends at the time, he comes out, and he is ticked. Uh, he is angry. He's like, that guy told me I was prideful and stubborn. Can you believe that? I was like, yeah, bro. Yeah. Like, we can see it in other people, can't we? Like, horses need spurs because they're often blind to when they need to move. Like, horses need spurs because they don't always see things the way that the rider sees things. Like, horses need spurs because sometimes... Like the rider wants them to move, and sometimes they're too stubborn to actually get up and move. And, and church, some of us, are, we're there right now. Like we know exactly what that's like because you're in the middle of that stubbornness or you're in the middle of that blindness, and your marriage may actually be falling apart right in front of your eyes. And for one reason or another, you're still debating whether or not you should reach out to a counselor or a friend or a life group or a pastoral staff or somebody in your life to actually go and get help. And you're sitting there going, okay, well, uh, I don't need any help. And, and, your, and your spouse is telling you otherwise, right? Like they're on the way out the door. Your kids are falling apart and you're still debating, do I actually need to move? Yeah, it's going to sting. And you might get there and you might realize, hey, you know what? I have something to do with this entire problem. Like this may have to do with me. But here's the reality. Deep down inside of our soul, we know, we know, and we know that there's times in our life where we are completely blind to the things we cannot see. You know what it feels like to be wrong? It feels like you're right. Right? That's what it feels like. When you're wrong, it feels like you're right. You need someone to come in and speak into the blindness and say, you know what, I know that this may sting and I know that this may hurt, but in love, in the context of respect, because I'm your brother or sister in Christ, I want to come and I want to spur you on to further love and good deeds. And some of us are right there and your marriage is falling apart and you're sitting there going, should I take this next step? And it's not even a question. And for some of us, it's, like not even a, it's, it's not a marriage that's falling apart, but maybe it's an addiction, or maybe it's depression, or an eating disorder, or fear, or laziness, or maybe it's anger, or rage, and you're refusing, you're debating, should I let anybody in to what's true in my life? Should I even ask for help? Because I might sting, I might have to change something. And what he's saying is, that's the point of our gathering. The reason we need one another. You can't Google this solution. You can't podcast it. You can't TED Talk this solution. You can't listen to the song on Pandora and get what you need. You need brothers. You need sisters that are in your life that are willing to love you so much that they come and say, you know what? Now's the time I need to spur just a little bit in love, in kindness, in respect, with a desire for your good and the desire for God's glory, I want to come and spur you on to further love and good deeds. And what this is also saying is sometimes that may be exactly what God is wanting to do in your life and you need to embrace the spurring that's going on in your life. And some of you are also there right now. You know you're in a season of being spurred and you hate it and you're being kicked and you're being prodded 
and, and your pride is, is just melting in front of your eyes, and you need to say, you know what? There's a purpose in this thing. There's a purpose here. And on the other end of this spurring on is greater love and greater good deeds, all for the glory of his name. Let's consider one another how to spur each other on to further love and good deeds. He continues to say, not forsaking the assembling together, right? As is the habit of some, in other words, like not like anything that we're seeing today, right? Not like what you're seeing today, not forsaking the assembling together. In other words, believers that are saying, you know what, I don't need the church. You know what, it's not perfect. Of course it's not perfect. You're not either. None of us are perfect. There's brokenness. There's, there's dysfunction all around the room. We love each other. We're committed to each other. We're, we're spurring each other on to further love and good deeds. In other words, what he's saying is not forsaking the assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day of Jesus Christ draw near. In other words, it's not just spurring on. Like it's not just prodding and poking and, and spurring on. There's a time for spurring and there's a time for cheering. Like there's a time to come alongside you and step into your shoes and to see exactly what you're going through and cheer you on and say, you can absolutely do this because God is faithful. It's exactly what he models for us, by the way, in verse 22. Verse 22, check this out. Here's how he encourages the church body. He says, in light of everything that God has done for us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, who's he talking to right there? Like he's speaking to the person who's running from the Lord in shame, right? Like that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the person that they can only hear the condemning voice of the accuser in their head saying, God loves people, but he does not love you. God loves people, but he does not like you. He, you're never going to be enough for him. You're never going to be able to be used by him. Yeah, he loves you. He does not absolutely like you. Yes, he forgives, but not what happened last night. Yes, he forgives, but not what happened six years ago. Yes, he forgives, but you've gone too far. Yes, he forgives, but, 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 but. Yes, he redeems. You're a little too far gone. This is the person uh, whose shame won't even allow them to pick up the word of God anymore to read. This is the person whose shame won't let them kneel anymore to pray. This is the person whose shame won't allow them to pick up the phone and phone a friend. That is who he is encouraging when he says, you can draw near to the throne room of God. He has given you access to the holy of holies. He has torn the temple, the temple veil in two in case you don't believe it. He has made it crystal clear that you and I, through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, now have access to the Holy of Holies. You don't believe it. You don't think that you, you deserve it. That's not the point of the matter. The point of the matter is that he lived a sinless life you could not live. He went to the cross and died the death you were supposed to die so that his blood could be the all-sufficient sacrifice that covers your sins once and for all, that you can enter into the holy place and the Holy of Holies over and over and over again. And some of you are sitting there going, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. And some of you are sitting there going, you don't, you don't know the labels that are on my head. Like, like I'm an adulterer. I'm, I'm a liar. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an abuser. I'm angry and I'm full of rage all the time. I'm a cheater. I'm an addict. I'm a convict. I'm a high school dropout. I'm a pornographer. I'm a gossip. I'm a slanderer. I'm covetous, I'm greedy and all of these different kinds of things. And and you're going, yeah, you don't know who I am. And Paul's going to correct you and he's going to say, you don't understand because that's who you were. 
That's who you were, but if you are in Jesus Christ and you have been washed with pure water and completely forgiven, you've been sanctified and called by God who created you holy. You've been set apart and called holy. You've been justified and declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because you are righteous, not because you've mastered morality and done things better than anyone else, but because he is righteous. And when you come to him in genuine faith, he gifts you his righteousness. So what the Lord says is true, let no man undo. And some of you do not feel clean, but if you are in Christ, then positionally, he has made you clean. And present tense, he is still making you more and more clean by the indwelling Holy Spirit. As you surrender to him every single day, he is making you more and more clean every single day. And then future tense, one day when Christ returns, you're going to live with him for all of eternity. And in that day, you'll be fully clean as he is fully clean. But until that day comes, if Jesus has called you clean, then I promise you, you can draw near to the throne room of God because you are absolutely clean. And if Jesus has called you beloved, then I promise you, you can rest assured that you are actually beloved by the Father in heaven. And if Jesus has called you child, then you are a child of God. And if Jesus has called you holy, then it may not make any sense to you, but I promise you, you are actually holy. That is what it looks like to encourage the body of Christ. Church, we need each other. You don't get that sitting at home by yourself. You don't get that when you're not in community with other people who can remind you of what's true when you're running from him in shame and you're sitting there going, you know what, I don't know what's true in my life. I have no business coming to the church. I have no business opening up the word of God. I have no business being used by him for his purposes and for his glory. You need a brother and sister sitting next to you in a life group that's going to remind you the things that are true. That yes, you were lost and dead in your sins. That's who you were. But in Jesus Christ, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is encouragement. Anybody need that from time to time? Stepping into someone's shoes. And not just preaching from a mountaintop saying, here's everything that's, that's true. But it's actually stepping into their shoes side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Empathizing in the pit of their despair, in the middle of their tears, in the middle of their dysfunction, in the middle of not knowing up from down, stepping into their pain and saying, I'm with you. And in the middle of this place, I want to help you see the cross. And I want you to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you're going to be okay at the end of this. I'm thinking of the Julie Hesses in the world who are constantly writing handwritten notes to people in our church body, reminding them they are absolutely loved by God Almighty, sending them to our college students that are away for school, sending care packages, reminding them that there's people back home that love them and pray for them. I'm thinking about my mother-in-law who goes above and beyond in her words of affirmation when we come home and we are insecure and, and we're doubting all kinds of things. She comes with her words and builds, them up, builds us up over and over again. I'm thinking of Randy Hess and his constant meetings. How can I support you? How can I encourage you? I'm thinking of Don Moody and her constant praying for our church body and for us individually. I'm thinking of Joyce Sherrod and her hugs. Man, she hugs a lot. And it's awesome. I'm thinking of Sharon Crowder and her e emails. I'm thinking of Tim McManus and his handwritten notes. Nobody writes handwritten notes anymore. And Tim actually has perfect cursive. I don't know what's wrong with that. It's beautiful. That's what he means when he says, let us consider how to encourage one another. Like, it's not arbitrary what we're doing. You can't do it online. We need each other. I'm going to end with this. A number of years ago, recently celebrating my three-year anniversary here at the church, and I feel like it happened yesterday. I, I, I still feel like a rookie all the time, and I was thinking back to the very beginning, but uh, immediately after I began, I hired a, a buddy of mine to come and help us with um, 
get organized and, and figure out, help me learn a little bit about our church and where we were and where we needed to grow. And so I hired him to hire a team of secret shoppers that would come into the church over a course of a few months. And I was like, I don't want to know who these people are. I don't want to know when they're coming. And no one else around here knew it was going to be taking place, but I want you to come in, go through the entire experience, um, every bit and facet of our church, and just help us understand, you know, where are we pretty good and where do we need to grow as a church body? And um, <laughs> that's pretty fun. That's a pretty fun uh, thing to be a part of. Um, so a few months later, I sit down and, and I'm uh, grabbing lunch with one of the guys who was a secret shopper. I didn't know him before. Uh, and I was like, all right, bro, just lay it on the line. I was like, tell me. Where we, what's going on in our church, and, and what are you seeing from a guest perspective, from an outsider's perspective? What were you seeing there? It's a pretty dangerous question to ask. And he goes, honestly, Aaron, he's like, I loved every bit of it. And he walked in, and he explained the entire day to me. He goes, we, we parked in the parking lot. We walked in, and immediately we saw Ricky, Ricky and Ray Stroop, and they were smiling at the front door, holding that door open. And we came in. There's another person ready to greet us. And and they helped us get over to the kids' ministry that day, and they brought us in, and we got our kids checked into the children's ministry. And we met Dawn Moody, and like Dawn like, was so excited to see us this morning, and she talked us through and made our kids feel so welcome. They walked us down the children's ministry hallway, and, and they took us into the classroom, and then the people in the classroom, they came and grabbed our kids, and they, they immediately showed them the toys that they were going to be playing with and, and told us a little bit about the story they were going to be sharing that day. And then they keep, kept walking around the children's ministry so we could see the, see the entire thing. And then we came out and we went and got a cup of coffee at the coffee shop and more people came and met us and we started talking and, and developed a good relationship. One couple invited us to come sit inside the church sanctuary. We went and sat with them. And then during the meet and greet time, these other people came and talked with us and, and we really developed a good connection with some people that were there. And, and then we worshiped and like we had, it was, it, was, it was authentic worship. It wasn't, we were able to genuinely worship and we were able to hear the gospel preached and proclaimed. And then well, like when the service was done, those people we talked to earlier, they came back and they actually like invited us to lunch. And, and they invited us to go to lunch and we did it. Like we loved and we had such a great connection with those people. And then we went and picked up our kids and the kids were like beaming. They met new friends that day and they actually remembered the lesson that they were taught that day. And we went back and he goes, honestly, the whole thing was incredible. We're joining the church. <laughs> and they did. They joined the church. And what Hebrews is saying is that that's what the church is supposed to be like all the time for everyone. Not just a one-off experience, not just that one home run moment in the life of a church. Not just a few people that are faithfully here week in and week out, but the entire body. Recognizing what God has done for them in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to make them a part of a body for one another, all for the good and glory of his name. That's what the church is supposed to look like all the time for everyone. It considers the other person. It doesn't just wake up going, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen for me. I wonder if I'm going to like this. I wonder if I'm going to get this. It wakes up in the morning and says, Lord, is there any way that you might want to use me to encourage someone else here this morning, whether I know them or not? Is there anything you want to do for me that would contribute to the building up of your body that's going to work for the glory and honor of your name this morning? Lord, if you want to use me to spur someone I love on, if you want to use me to spur someone that I respect on in the context of this relationship that we have, in the context of love and grace and kindness, uh, even though it's a difficult conversation to have, God, I want to say yes to that. I want to be used by you for your purposes and for your glory because that is the point of our gathering. We gather together for the good of one another that we would move forward in love and good deeds, all for the glory of his name.
And what Jesus is saying is that when that church is unified in its confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, then hell will not be able to prevail. It's not a question of whether or not you should commit to a church. You already are a part of the church. The only question is, are you a contributing member or crippling 